0: Hello, I'm Vernon Mann. Welcome to Heathrow Airport. It's the late 70s, three years or so after the civil war broke out in Lebanon. I'm boarding a Middle Eastern Airways flight to Beirut, along with a cameraman and sound guy. We've been scrambled at dawn, the foreign editor, as usual, oblivious of the hour. The call wakes up my long suffering wife Avril. Where are you going now? she inquires sleepily. Beirut, I reply. Ah, oh, Have a nice time, she says, yawns, rolls over, and goes back to sleep. When I first started travelling at such ungodly hours like this, I'd get a cup of tea and a kiss at the door as I left. By mutual consent, these niceties have disappeared. She has a busy day ahead. All I have to do is sit on a plane. There's a minicab waiting outside, booked by the office. That'll be Charlie, I guess. He's the nearest driver to me and, like most of his colleagues, is recovering from some sort of personal or financial disaster. I think he's been cleaned out by a divorce and suspect he sleeps in his car because there's always an unpleasant smell and he has two of those sickly, smelly, so-called fresh air things hanging from his rearview mirror. A couple of trips ago, going from central London to the airport, he stops just around the corner from the office and asks if I can lend him a tenner for petrol. He's a pretty decent bloke, though, so I give him the tenner, don't complain to his office, and get to the airport on time. Never did get the money back, though. Heathrow, as ever, is buzzing. I meet up with the crew at check-in, cameraman and soundman. There's no queue. Only one other passenger, a Lebanese businessman, overweight and perspiring. The flight attendant forces a welcoming smile, indicates the empty aircraft and says, you can sit where you like. Unfortunately, there's no first class, so we settle down in business. The attendant is maybe in his late 40s, stocky, well, fat, a three-day stubble on his cheeks, like most Lebanese, and a large moustache. He doesn't seem too happy to see us. I don't think he thought he'd be flying at all today, given the fighting going on in Beirut, which is where we're going. When will you know if the airport's going to be open? I inquire. He shrugs his shoulders, gestures with his hands. Now is okay. In ten minutes, it might not be. Three hours ago, it was shut. He's the only flight attendant and doesn't bother with the usual pre takeoff demonstrations about life jackets and so on. Not that we're bothered. Instead, he goes to the galley at the back of the plane and comes back with a bag full of miniature champagne bottles. Nice one. There's more in the galley, he says. Help yourselves. With that, he stretches out in a row of three and closes his eyes. As the plane gathers speed on the runway, we glug the champagne, necking from the bottles as the wheels leave the ground. Lebanon is a bit like Northern Ireland. It'll be quiet for a while and we'll pull out our camera crews. Then all hell breaks loose and we have to fly them all back in again. All hell has broken loose again in Lebanon, with heavy fighting reported in and around Beirut involving Christian and Muslim militias. I've been there a few times before, hijacking various military flare-ups and Israeli incursion, flying like now from Heathrow, or by ferry from Cyprus when Beirut Airport was deemed unsafe, which was a lot of the time in those days. Middle East Airways, Lebanon's national carrier, is the only airline prepared to take a chance when things get rough. Sometimes, weighed down with heavy TV gear from the UK, European and American networks, its planes struggle to get off the ground. This time, with such a light load, it needs only half the runway and we're up and away in seconds. There's no food on the plane, just crisps and cheesy biscuits in a box in the galley. They hadn't been expecting passengers and we'd booked at the very last minute. It's a three-hour flight. We pass the time by downing Fizz and reminiscing about other airline experiences – My contribution is a tale of an emergency landing at Gatwick, fire engines racing each side of us, spraying foam because they thought our landing gear was stuck, which luckily it wasn't. The Lebanese businessman doesn't join the chat, he's just sitting in his seat, fidgeting with a safety instruction card. I doze for a while, awakening as the captain emerges from the cockpit, stretching and yawning loudly. He smiles, introduces himself, and grabs a bottle of champagne, which as captain he probably shouldn't have done, but hey, these are unusual circumstances. If it was me flying the plane, i need a shot of something stronger. The captain's quite young, early thirties, swarthy complexion, unshaven. I'm sure he'll get us there safely. He asks us to fasten our seatbelts, because he says it might get a bit rough out there. He pauses dramatically, then adds, we could get shot down. We splutter into our champagne. Only joking, he said. Sorry, but there are some nasty things flying about out there tonight and he's not talking mosquitoes. He's talking about rocket-propelled grenades and he warns that we might not be able to land at all. If it looks too dangerous, we might have to divert to Cyprus. I'll give it a go, though, he promises, drains his champagne and, suitably fortified for the landing ahead, returns to the cockpit to join the co-pilot. Well, we assume there's a co-pilot. Meanwhile, the flight attendant emerges from his slumbers and stiffly raises himself from his place of rest. He too opens a bottle and sits with us, rubbing his sleepy eyes. Soon we can make out the lights of Beirut sparkling in the darkness. Alarmingly, some of the lights are moving, red and white flares like fireworks streaking across the sky. Shit, mutters the Lebanese businessman. RPGs, says the flight attendant. He's been through all this before. What do you reckon, I ask? What are the odds of us landing in this? Or would we have to divert? He takes a swig. It's up to the captain. Maybe it's too late to change course now. It's in the lap of the gods. So we gaze apprehensively through the windows as we start our final approach and watch more RPGs flying through the air, a couple of them disturbingly close to our wingtips. And then, with a shudder and a bang, we're down on the tarmac. And as we break to a halt we can hardly hear our own expletives for the noise of the explosions. They're shelling the airport, says a flight attendant, in the same monotone he would doubtless use when saying doors to manual. Our engines go quiet, accentuating the noise outside. The aircraft rocks violently with each explosion. We sit in silence, champagne bottles in tightly clenched fists, wondering how long it'll be before we're hit. No one says a word. We're truly stuck. No one will come and get us off the plane in this, and you can't blame them. We could, I suppose, open the doors and run for it, but none of us fancies that, and not even the captain, who'd left the cockpit and joined us. We sit in shock for half an hour or more, lost in our thoughts, as the airport takes a pounding. Powerless to do anything. Champagne spills on my trousers as another blast rattles the plane. Then we think we hear a pounding on the door. What the hell's that? It's a pounding on the door. The captain yanks it open to reveal a man in a white suit and tie, leaning a stepladder against the fuselage. Parked a few feet from the aircraft is a white, stretched, convertible limousine, engine running. It's all a bit surreal, a mirage, perhaps. Come, come, screams the man in the suit. Out, out, quickly, quickly. What about our gear, we shout. Later, later, get in now, get in, hurry. We jump into the car, making room for the Lebanese businessman who says... Dying in a moving limo is preferable to dying on a stationary plane. There's an explosion on the runway 60 metres away as our limo races across the tarmac, swerving to avoid the shell craters. Then we're clear of the airport, but not yet clear of the fighting, gunfire in the next street. The driver turns the radio up full blast to mask the noise of conflict. Elvis Presley sings Heartbreak Hotel. The driver explains, shouting above the music, that the airport had called the hotel to say we were stuck. The manager sent him to get us. All part of the job, he says with a smile, as he negotiates the narrow, dark streets. We always take care of our guests. I wonder guiltily what's happening to the plane's crew, but not for long. There's nothing we can do anyway. We discover a fridge behind the front seats containing chilled flutes and a bottle of fine French champagne. Welcome back to Beirut, the driver says. Have a nice stay. Every conflict zone has its media hotel, a place where, for whatever reason of geography or bribery, journalists can operate and communicate with reasonable safety and get fed and watered. So welcome to the Commodore Hotel in West Beirut, home away from home for me and the whole gang of foreign journalists covering the Civil War. We base ourselves here because it's not too far from the airport and everything just about works, even the phones and the telex. Above all, the hotel is sort of safe. The area is home to various armed and unpredictable militias, all capable of dastardly deeds, but all paid off by the hotel owners. They might be fighting all around the streets outside, and often there is, but the hotel remains unscathed apart from a few stray bullets hitting its walls. Sometimes, though, we're advised to stay in our rooms until things calm down, and just occasionally a car bomb might rattle the windows. Reception clerks with deadpan faces ask new arrivals if they would prefer a shell-facing room or a safe-facing room. Then the newbies flinch as Coco the Parrot delivers his very realistic rendition of incoming shellfire. The circular bar is an intriguing and colourful mix of uniformed militiamen, politicians and their bodyguards, journalists of all nationalities... Diplomats, intelligence officers, spies and ladies of the day and night. Occasionally security will throw somebody out or there'll be an argument and guns might be toted. It's a people-watcher's paradise. One lunchtime I witnessed a boy aged 10 strip a Kalashnikov assault rifle and put it back together again in six minutes, his mother watching proudly, gin in hand. The correspondent invites her to his room, leaving me with a rifle-toting boy, Thankfully, they're back in not much longer a time, than it would have taken the boy to strip the gun again. The rooms are nothing to shout about, and there are cockroaches. The food is pretty basic, but they do great scrambled eggs for breakfasts, shaky, hungover hacks, struggling to keep the eggs on their forks. Before the Civil War, the Commodore had been a seedy, three-star tourist joint, and to be honest, apart from the bar, it still is a bit of a dump. The owner, Youssef Nazal, bought it around 1975 from two guys who went broke playing cards and horses. Posher media hotels like the Holiday Inn and the Phoenicia were destroyed in the early days of the Civil War, so Youssef put in new phone and telex lines, tarted up the place a wee bit, and suddenly he and the Commodore are hosting the world's media and making an absolute fortune, which he thoroughly deserves. In the next edition, please don't shoot our driver. Join me then for more Tales from Lebanon. This is Vernon Mann. Look forward to seeing you again.